Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. All right, I'm so pumped for my next episode because it is with one of my good, good friends, Seth Madison. Now, here's why you should get excited. You see, Seth is a top keynote speaker on workplace trends that are coming up for Fortune 500 and Fortune 50 companies. But he's also a seven-figure entrepreneur himself. So he has the inside scoop on how to be successful and thrive in both ends of the spectrum. As a matter of fact, he even shares which end he'd rather be on. We also talk about how to build a thriving speaker business where he gets paid up to twenty-five dollars to $50,000 per speech. And we also talk about the future of the workplace environment, this big battle of hierarchies versus networks. We talk about millennials and why they get a bad rap and if it's deserved or not. And best of all, we talk about Seth's long journey of his relationship with money. He grew up on a small farm with absolutely no dreams of being wealthy, and now he is a seven-figure entrepreneur who is absolutely thriving. So there is something for everyone in this episode, and you are going to love it. Let's dive in. Seth, my friend, how you doing? I'm good, Chris. I'm good. So happy and excited to uh, be joining you on this awesome new podcast. Dude, thanks for being on. You know what's funny? This is no different than when we get together as couples or get together just you and I. This is I what know, we talk right? about, like this business and life and how it affects it. So this is like second nature to us. Totally. This is what we live for. I love it. Okay, so listen, I've built you up. I mean, you are an all-star <laughs> in what you do. You're an all-star in what you do. live up to the hype. <laughs> do this. Explain to us what you do in your words. Uh, I, you know, I wish I had some like super fancy, cool terminology that I could use, but essentially the, the simplest way to describe it, I research, I write, I speak on workforce trends, generational dynamics, marketplace shifts. My customers, my client base are primarily a mix of fortune 500, fortune 50 organizations and then associations across just about every single industry and sector are my audiences. We do about 70 to 75 live events a year with audiences that range in size from could be 100 leaders with an internal event all the way up to you know some of our biggest audiences are around four or 5,000 people. Oh, man. What kind of event do you like to do the most then? That's such a good question. I love when people ask me that because while the, you know, big stage, big production, you know, rolling out in front of 4,000 people, which you know because you've done that, um, is super exciting and really fun. My, my favorite days are the days when there are 75 to 125 like really tuned in, turned on leaders where we can get into a really robust discussion and back and forth and kind of like get into an interactive dialogue versus just me kind of keynoting um, because those are the days that I get filled up and, and I end up learning more and almost getting more value than sometimes I even feel like I deliver. So I, I love those days but, but certainly rolling out on an unbelievable stage with with all the bells and the whistles is is pretty fun you know total tangent but 
do you get nervous still? Were you like always comfortable just rolling out on stage and being like, here's my info, take it or leave it? Another great question. Um, you know, I, I, I liken it a little bit to, you know, anybody who was ever an athlete, you know, before a game, no matter how many games you've been playing, how long you've been around, it's like you still get a little bit of the, the pregame jitters. And I, I certainly still get that. And it's just a little bit more of kind of the um, anxious excitement of, of wanting it to do and go well, you know, because we all know how we feel when, 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 we're, when we're living our art or our craft and you slip into the zone, so to speak, of when you're just, you're just in total flow state. And we know what that feels like. And, and it's difficult to make that happen every single time. It's a, it's, it, it's a little bit unpredictable. Some days you just, you're in it, you're in that flow state and the words just come and it feels so good. And in other days it feels like you're maybe chopping wood through it a little bit and you're just not quite as sharp. And so that's like the X factor that you can't control. The other X factor, you know, in terms of some of the nerves is every audience is has its own personality. I liken it a little bit to um, going on a blind date. If 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 people can, if you can remember, like back in the day, both of us are married. It's been a long time since we've probably been on a blind date, ages. but you remember, right? Ages, but still, like you, you know what that feels like of showing up, and you're just—it's a little bit of anticipation of like, what will this person be like, and will we connect? And I'm telling you. Every audience is the same. Every audience has this personality where sometimes they're they're fun and bubbly and excited and 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 really fired up to be there and they're with you. And then there's other audiences that it's almost borderline adversarial, right? Where they're it's maybe their natural personality. They're lawyers or they're they're scientists and 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 their brain naturally goes to a place of maybe trying to disprove or they're a little more skeptical of what you're talking about and it takes a little bit more to bring them around versus a group that's just like, yeah, we're with you. And so all of those factors kind of feed and fuel a little bit of the, the nerves on the front end. And I, and I certainly still feel that. And definitely early on, man, I had multiple moments. In fact, I'll never forget a moment. The, the, the first time I did, I had an event with Microsoft and it was literally their top 25 leaders. Steve Ballmer wasn't in the room, but literally like the next step down from Ballmer. And there were only 25 in the room. And when you're in a room of that size, 25 people, you're totally exposed, right? Like if you have any nervous energy, there's no way to hide it. On a big stage, you can kind of like jump around a little bit and hide that nervousness. 25 people, you're just like laid bare. And literally, as the person's kind of doing my little intro, I can feel my heart like literally, you know, pounding so hard. You're like, oh my God, these people are going to hear my heart through my microphone. And, and, and then you're in your head and like you, you're, your lungs contract, you're not breathing. And it, fortunately, I was able to pull it together. But that experience really helped me get specific about how I, how I prepare before walking on stage and how I activate sometimes those nervous feelings. And a lot of it is just simply the story that we attach to the feelings. So I think this is relevant for anybody. You know what? You're getting ready to make a sales call, a pitch, you know, try to raise some capital is when you feel those feelings, you know, whether it's a little it's the butterflies in the stomach, it's the heat at the back of your neck, it's changing the story that you attach to those feelings from this is a bad thing. Oh my God, this means I'm going to do bad. And I, I simply replace that with an empowering story of this is my body preparing me to deliver, you know, at, 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 from at peak performance. 
And, and it just fills me up like, this is a good thing. This is here to support me. This is here to make me be sharp. And by simply kind of changing the story and saying that it's just a feeling, it's okay, it's there, it totally changes the dynamic. And it's, it's been a total game changer in helping me kind of manage some of those, those nerves on the front. But I, I, I still feel it, buddy. There's days I still feel it. I definitely know what you're talking about. Let me ask you this. Do you have a specific mantra, a specific backstage routine that you do? You know, I always I try I try to get get movement in my body. Everybody, you know, has probably seen uh, you know Tr Tony Robbins is literally jumping on a trampoline before he rolls out, and um, and I've learned some movements both from him and then and then actually Jack Canfield. I got to see him speak a few years ago. We were on the same stage together, and and he did this this energy kind of movement exercise with me of just you know motion creates emotion in the body, and so you know in some of those settings you can be back stage and I am I'm, I'm jumping around I'm getting my breath amped up again to drive the energy but then there's other times where it's like you know I, I'm in a smaller room and there's 50 people in there and there's really no quote-unquote backstage and I'll still just kind of excuse myself and go to the back of the room and kind of start to get a little bounce start to get a little vibration going and then in terms of a mantra every day before I walk out on stage and this is actually a note I have on my website is I, I, I write myself a note and there, there's four lines on it and it says love people serve people, add value, have fun. Oh, man. We could just end this thing right here. <laughs> people can copy oh. that mantra and just thrive in life. That is Dude, awesome. Love people, serve people, add value, have fun. And I'll tell you why I write that down. Because it, it helps me get out of my own head, get out of my own way, right? We get so concerned about, am I going to – you know, deliver? Am I going to sound smart? Are people going to like me? Are they going to like the content? It's like, get out of your own way and focus specifically on helping your audience. If you love people, you, you love on them. If you pour into them, you serve them, you look to add value in whatever, even small way you can. And then remember to freaking have fun. Otherwise, why are you doing it, right? Like, enjoy the moment. Life is too short. If it feels like it's work, why the heck are we doing it? So that's my mantra before we roll out. And, you know, a combination of those things has, has kind of helped us have you know, a little bit of success in my, my space, man, that's valuable. I, I tell you, what, I'm going to get a lot of comments and a lot of emails just about that knowledge that you dropped on them alone. I love it. People are going to be borrowing that. I know it. Good. So listen, you and I, here we are thriving in LA, hmm. except we're both Midwest born and raised. Ugh. You know, you specifically were a farm kid growing up in rural, and I want to stress rural, <laughs> Minnesota. So how did we end up out here? In other words, what influence did that upbringing have on your now successful business life? Yeah, dude, we are not only from the Midwest, but we are, I mean, I, I, I'm country. And, and, and quite frankly, <laughs> I am country like and people always it's always surprising I think when people meet me because uh, you know we, we 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 judge a book by its cover it's like I maybe don't dress like that anymore I love fashion I love suits people will sometimes think like this could you know this you're telling me you're from the country and I'm like yeah I grew, I grew up on a fourth generation farm in southern Minnesota, I went to, to high school in a town, a population of 1,800 people, graduated with 80 people. Like this is as salt of the earth, you know, Midwest as you can get. And uh, I, I think it was one of the greatest blessings in the world. I give thanks every single day. 
that I had that environment to to come of age in, you know, between the farm and my family and my parents and just that just that setting. And there's a couple of, you know, big, big lessons that, you know, I've, I've taken from coming of age in that environment. I think one of the biggest just growing up in that family farm, absolutely nothing is given for free. My 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 grandfather would always say, you know, if, if you don't show up in the spring and plant your seeds, if you don't if you don't cultivate and care and tend the weeds in the summertime, right? You can't just show up in the fall and expect a bountiful harvest. You know, where were you in April? And the thing about showing up in April is that, you know, for all of the entrepreneurs and everybody that's pounding the stone on their craft that's listening to this is that all of that work is kind of done outside of the limelight. You know, it's it's getting up early and it's putting in the work and putting in the time when no one's watching and there is zero fanfare. But if you don't do that, if you don't show up in the spring and you don't bust your butt through the summer, it's like there's nothing to harvest in the fall. And from an agricultural background, which if you go back, you know, from a from from a human as a species, human beings, you know, we are hunter gather farmers. And, and that was that survival, right? You don't survive the winter. If, you, if you're not planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall, you don't make it. And so nothing is given, nothing is promised. And, and doing the hard, dirty work in the dark when no one's watching and paying attention um, are things that I've carried with me. And I think as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you know, sitting here at the desk and pounding away outside of the limelight, you know, people can see the, the experience and see you rolling out on Instagram on these stages and traveling and it seems great, but it wasn't always like that, right? It wasn't always like that. That's, that's the end result of a lot of hard work, which is true for, for all entrepreneurs and business owners that are tuning in. But those are some of the big things that I've taken away from, from growing up in that environment. Yeah, man, what's that saying? It, it's, it, you get rewarded in public for what you practice in private or something like that? That's it. That's, you know, it's funny that I was trying to come up with some perfectly sounding smart soundbite, but you just nailed, that's exactly what it is. You know, the other thing that I'll say um, that when we get into and we start to talk about kind of some of the trends that I'm seeing, the other big lesson that I learned growing up on in this environment, fourth generation farm, father, grandfather, great grandfather, was this idea of understanding the value of knowing where you came from and what's made you so successful, but not holding on so tightly that it makes you miss what's coming next. Right? It, it, it's essentially a lesson of being able to reinvent. You've got to know what's made you successful. You want to hold on to your history, your heritage, your legacy. But I, I see some leaders, some businesses, some industries, they hold on to it so tightly at their own detriment that they're unable to evolve and shift and change into you know, what the marketplace is demanding next. And they get disrupted. Man, is that yeah. incredible. So you have to be strong but flexible. Totally. That's it. That's it. So you have a really unique perspective, and let me kind of paint this picture for people. You're both an epic entrepreneur in that you run your own successful brand that is crushing it, but you're also an expert in workplace trends for massive corporations, you know, Fortune 500 and Fortune 50 corporations, like you were saying before. So yep. here's the question. Mm. In your eyes, is it better to be the entrepreneur or the C-suite executive at a big corporation and why? Wow, that that is a great question. It's actually not one that I've ever stopped and thought about before. Um, 
man, to be the entrepreneur or to be in that senior executive C-suite, I think you have great perspective on that too, because you've essentially lived in both worlds. You know, I, I guess I would just say for me personally, I, I love my life as an entrepreneur. I love the freedom, the flexibility, the be the, the the ability to be able to just design what I want. You know, we've got I've got subcontractors, we've had employees in the past, but it's been relatively small. That certainly gives me more flexibility um, than say, you know, a le- especially a leader who's leading a public organization who's feeling pressure from Wall Street and meeting those quarterly, you know, goals and benchmarks. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. But I think both both have their advantages. For me personally, I would much rather opt. And I think that's a bit more where the world is going when we look at how work is evolving and changing. You know, e- even individuals who will ultimately work for large Fortune 50 type brands, they're no longer going to just necessarily be in the traditional employee role. And so being able to operate as an employee, excuse me, as an entrepreneur, whether again you're partnering with large brands serving in kind of a contractual purpose. Or you just have your own brand and your own business and you're adding value to the marketplace. That, to me, that's really going to be the future as individuals, um, which means you're going to have to have a whole new set of skills. Let's, let's go that direction, actually, because you are really well known as like one of the top trend spotters in business. You know, that is why these corporations bring you in. You're also an expert in generational trends, talking about what each generation is going to look like in a workforce. So yeah. get out your crystal ball. <laughs> predict for us the future like where's the big money gonna be what's the workplace gonna look like you know where should we all be in the next 10 years great great question so you're you're right i um just the the cliff note on my background came out of university went into management consulting i went to work for a firm that focused on people process and technology and I naturally gravitated towards the people side of the work that we were doing, leadership development, culture change work, executive alignment. And at the time, our clients were, you know, they'd oftentimes be 30 years older than I was. And, and, and they were looking at me, Chris, like, you know, what in the hell are you going to tell me about leadership, kid? You're like the age of my kid or my grandchild in some cases. And so to be able to bridge the gap with them, I started to ask them more specific questions about their younger workforce. Uh, and this is back in, you know, 06 timeframe, 10 plus years ago. And where we hear about generations and millennials everywhere today because there's so many new digital channels through which we communicate and news gets published. Back in 05, 06 timeframe, you know, there wasn't as much as conversation around it. It was a new subject. And so I'm asking our clients about their challenges with essentially millennials in the new workforce and all of this pain came pouring out of them. And so from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the bells are going off in my head where it was like essentially I'm, I'm recognizing a pain in the marketplace and for the very first time, my age right, could serve as a benefit instead of holding me back of having credibility in the room. Now, because essentially I was a physical representation of this generation and the shift that was coming, I sort of became these executives, quote unquote, inside guy, as I would call it, to understanding the shift. And my mind was exploding. Like, this is a real thing. And, I, and funny enough, I actually pitched our consulting firm on starting a generational dynamics practice. And uh, the CEO laughed at me and he was like, <laughs> he's like, you know, I don't, I don't really think that's a thing, bud. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, I think this is going to be a thing, man. I think it's going to be a thing. And, you know, of course, it's like now, now it is a thing. 
But I got lucky in that I looked at, I was like, I wouldn't be deterred. So I looked out into the marketplace and I said, who else is doing this that I could, I could mirror that I could potentially partner with. And I found two best-selling authors, uh, named David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster. David's from Minnesota. Lynn was from California and they wrote a bestseller in 2002 called when generations collide and they were getting ready to write a new book about millennials. And I just, I spent six months like pitching them and staying on their radar and working to convince them to take me on. And, and I, I, they, they finally did, but I, mean, I had to work for virtually free for almost a full year, making no money. I, I literally was donating blood platelets to like keep the, the lights on, but I just knew this was the path and I knew it was the thing. And so th- they, they, they brought me on we spent almost four years together. It gave me an unbelievable platform to be able to do the research, have access to clients, start to learn the craft of speaking. And when they retired, it gave me a chance to launch on my own. And when I launched on my own, back to your question of what am I seeing, is I took a very specific pivot in the marketplace with my brand. I, I pivoted from thinking exclusively about generations into broader, larger future of work, future of leadership trends. So if you look at my brand now, it's much more under the guise of kind of the future of work. And it and it, it, it served me well. I still certainly have clients that ask me to specifically speak about millennials or the next generation, Gen Z. But it's it now it's just kind of more one of a number of topics that come up. And, and I have to tell you, in terms of specifically what am I seeing? next over the last four years we really we dove deep into kind of what i call all of the kind of new micro trends impacting how we show up and work today and from that research chris there was one trend that kind of bubbled up to the top of the research and at the foundation at the base of that trend lies this dynamic tension between what we call hierarchies and networks hierarchies and networks Essentially what we mean by this is is that as we are kind of marching headlong into this new hyper-connected networked world, right, in both the marketplace and the world of work, where it's colliding headlong with the structures and more importantly, the deeply embedded culture of the hierarchy that exists inside every single organization and every single institution in the world. And there is this epic battle playing out between these two worlds, the hierarchy and the network. In fact, that led to the writing of a new book that's coming out right now that we entitled The War at Work. And that's really what it is. It's, it's a war at work. It's a battle every day between these two dynamics. And we've got, we've got generations of leaders who came of age in a very high, a world based on the hierarchy because hierarchies play out at all levels of our existence. It's not just at work. Hierarchies play out in our family dynamics, right? The, the family tree, what dad says goes. Hierarchies play out in our, in our communities, in our companies, in our institutions and society at large. And by coming of age in that world, We've learned a whole set of what we call unwritten rules about how we think about leadership and information and authority and who has say and who has power. And that world is colliding headlong with this more fluid, flexible, networked world, which younger generations – 
millennials in the research it's basically like anyone who's been working for about 10 years or less was essentially birthed into this world of the network and the network has its own set of unwritten rules and how you operate and to be able to contribute and access to information and fill in the blank and so we've been studying this dynamic and so to your question about what is the future and and who ultimately is going to win i think the organizations and 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 mind you this battle between hierarchies and networks it's not just playing out in the big companies, the IBMs, Microsoft, GEs, etc. This dynamic plays out in the five-person mechanical contractor from Des Moines, Iowa, right? As that leader shows up and thinks about, right, you need to, you know, keep your nose to the grindstone and you've got to earn your right to be able to contribute and have a seat at the table and you got to work your way up, fill in the blank, plays out at all levels of organizations, The organizations that will win are the ones that can recognize that this shift is happening, that this tension is playing out, and they can intentionally design and think through where do we want to be, where does the hierarchy serve us, and where do we need to be more networked. I don't see a future state where we are literally blowing up the hierarchy and the hierarchy is dead and we all operate in kind of fluid, flexible networks. It's somewhat somewhere in between. There certainly are organizations who are blowing up their hierarchy. Zappos is, is the most celebrated and recognized organization to do that now. They're, they're implementing a business model called Holacracy, which is essentially they have literally gone away from the hierarchy completely and reimagined how we distribute power and authority in an organization. That's an, that's an extreme on one side. But most of my clients, Chris, I say all the time, you know, IBM is not going to blow up their org chart. They're not going to blow up their hierarchy. But what I'm trying to help leaders at all levels in all industries understand is that you can still operate in a hierarchy without being hierarchical. And that that's a whole new way of thinking about what it means to be a leader, the skills and competencies that will be required to lead in this new world. And so the organizations that can recognize that, can empower and, and, and in, instill new mindsets, new behaviors, new skills in their leadership will create organizations that are more fluid and flexible and able to anticipate changes in the marketplace so they don't get freaking disrupted. So in there, you mentioned millennials, and, and I'm guessing the millennials have a lot to do with you know flooding the workplace, and that's why this battle is starting to play out. Here's the deal. I feel like millennials seem to catch a lot of heat. Yeah. You know, people call them lazy. They call them entitled. They mm. don't want shortcuts. Mm. Where does this misunderstanding come from, or, or is it not a misunderstanding, or, you know, Speak to, to me on this a little bit. Hey, listen, listen, it's a great question. And, and it's always interesting to me when I sit down with an organization or a client, their view about millennials and, and leaders, even individual leaders. And sometimes you meet leaders and they're like, listen, I'm excited about this generation. Are there, are there areas of opportunity to help this group improve like every generation, especially like every new, young, next generation that comes of age? Certainly. But with them, they come, you know, comes all sorts of great attributes. I think it really depends on your mindset. Are there are there you know millennials who lack work ethic and uh, are not able to deliver on expectations and follow through? Certainly, but that's true of absolutely every single generation. So some of it is just like the typical, which has been happening throughout all of history and time, of the older generation bemoaning the next younger generation as being lazy slackers. But because this generation was birthed into this network world. Uh, and, and they were influenced by a few transformational shifts that we see playing out now that we've never seen throughout history. 
they do bring new behaviors. But what I, I will say, and I believe this to be more and more true every single day, is that those expectations that millennials are bringing with them, I call them quote unquote fluid expectations, even the beha- their behaviors in the marketplace, meaning they're influencing everyone. So much of the way millennials are showing up in the world, right? Wanting more work-life balance, wanting more f- flexibility, wanting to be able to leverage tools and technology to work from anywhere at any time, to have more meaning and purpose in their work, to, 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 to try to be motivated by things more than just making money, but to try to give back in the world. None of these things are things that I found when I talked to other generations that they wouldn't also like to have, that they wouldn't also push for. The difference is, again, it goes back to the hierarchy. For prior generations, they just simply were not in a position to demand these things at such a young age. Would they have liked to have more flexibility? Would they have liked to have more balance? Would they have liked to have a seat at the table and to be able to contribute in meaningful ways? Of course they would have. But it wasn't an option. They weren't empowered to be able to demand those things because what this generation has is a couple of things going for them. Number one, they have an, uh, an uncanny understanding of the most disruptive and transformative technologies in the world. So you've got, as I'll give you a specific example, I deal a lot with a lot of clients in the financial services and insurance space. Those industries are being totally disrupted and revolutionized by robo-advisors and technology platforms, digital transformation that's coming in. And oftentimes, the most senior leaders in the room are less knowledgeable about the tools disrupting their business than the 25-year-old that historically has not had a seat at the table. So how do you get them to rethink what it means to be able to get to contribute and set the strategy in a meaningful way? The other thing millennials have had going for them, both from a, from a family dynamic standpoint and from a societal standpoint that other generations didn't have, is that essentially they can show up and demand sort of a better experience in the world of work and from brands. And if a, and if a company is unwilling to meet those demands, that individual can say, because they, they, they are delaying buying homes, they're delaying getting married, they're delaying having children, they have less responsibility, and they're, they have a greater, closer relationship with their parents. If I don't like this job, guess what? I'm moving back home with mom and dad because they've got more food in their refrigerator and a bigger TV, and mom's going to be happy to take me back. For other generations, at 25, you were married with mouths to feed, Right? You had a roof to keep over people's head. You couldn't tell your boss to take this job and shove it as easily. Not to mention, from a societal standpoint, Chris, how, how did people view individuals who, let's say, they had to lo- they lost their job? Right, even when we think about our parents' generation, if they lost their job and had to move back home into their parents' basement, from a society standpoint, what did people think about them? What did they call them? It was shame. Shame. You were a loser. You're a loser. I've had executives say to me, Seth, I would have rather cut my left arm off than move back home into my parents' basement. And this new generation, and it's not even to say new because leading edge members of millennials are 35, 36 years old. Like it's not like they're teenagers. In fact, the next generation, Gen Z, is rolling into university now. They, if this job is not fulfilling, if this doesn't feel like this is going to be the right experience, I've got the ability to have a safety net, a fallback. And my final point on this to think about, which I think is a really interesting discussion point, is the fact that would would you agree, Chris, that we are we are we're 
essentially going to be older longer than ever before. Healthy and older longer than ever before. Would you Without agree with that? Without, Without a doubt, doubt, right? 60 looks different than it did even 15 years ago. 50 is on, right? We've got friends that are 50 and they look unbelievable. So if we're staying older longer, then isn't it fair to assume and to think that we will stay younger longer? Meaning that period of time from university, from 22 to the average age of, of, of affluent, wealthy millennials getting married now is 32 and 33. Those 10 years, instead of feeling like you immediately have to find the job, plug into the company that you're going to work, to, work for for the next 40 years, no longer exists. There's now a decade to spend time experimenting and figuring out your passion, what you love, what works, where your skills are. And that might mean, right, because we know the average tenure of millennials is a little over two years, you're doing some tours at maybe some, some, some traditional companies, traditional organizations. Maybe you're sampling with some entrepreneurship. You're, you're, you're launching a site. you got a side hustle going on at the same time. And so that period of time now, which is where a lot of the frustration comes from companies, is just recognizing that never existed before and and let's embrace it and find ways to help people actually identify their skills their passions their path so that by the time they roll into their early 30s they're in a really good position to add tremendous value and impact either in their own lives or to an organization so the c-suite executives are like true change agents or really any leader that is open to being a change agent those are the ones that are going to thrive Oh my gosh. Navigating change, I think, is one of the, if not the most critical skill that a leader has to be able to embrace today. Right? You have to not only be a change champion, a change agent, but you personally have to be able to navigate change in new ways. And I think that's true for all of us. At any level. At any level. Um, but then the question becomes, well, what do you, how do you actually live that? Right? To navigate change well how do you do that? Whether you're a 45 or 55-year-old executive in a company or you're a 25 entrepreneur, 25-year-old entrepreneur. And I think there's a few things that you have to you have to really embrace to really be able to navigate change. A couple of skills and competencies that are required to lead with impact in this environment. And the first thing is that you have to be a lifelong learner. And I think this is one of the things that you are such an example of. You leave, live and breathe this so well. You know, the idea that, that leaders are readers. Um, and, and as entrepreneurs, you know, I think we've, we've, we've all learned to embrace that. If you, you've got to keep the self-education up. But what I found in the, on the corporate side is that partially it's just life, right? You get busy. People are working 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day. They go home with family. The, we sort of stop the self-education. And you know, we, look, we, we look at one of our clients, IBM. It's interesting. Their CEO, Randall Stevenson, he threw down an unbelievable challenge to all of their employees. I think it was now a year and a half, two years ago. And he essentially said that and if you're not devoting and putting in at least five to ten hours outside of traditional working hours to educate and improve your skills, you will essentially render yourself irrelevant in this organization. That's what's going to be required. Right? He said that to his employee base. Wow. That's so, and by the way, that's, that's not a lot of skin in the game. Right? Five to I mean, ten hours. If you think about it, you know, you're talking about an hour to two hours a night, right, of like skip – 
the, you know, it's not even saying that you can't have a little bit of downtime because I'm all for that. But it's like instead of watching binge watching three episodes of House of Cards, it's like just watch one. Right. I go back to I'll tell you, uh, this is this is a good one. One of my favorite Zig Ziglar uh, tips from back in the day was what he called your EVE ratio. And EVE ratio is essentially entertainment versus education. And I think about it all. It stuck with me partially because, you know, it's, it's catchy, your EVE ratio. And just thinking about where is your entertainment, right, your time spent in entertainment versus education? And where do you want that to be? And I'm not here to tell you what that should be. You know, it should be three to one, two to one, one to one. But from a self-reflection standpoint, I think it's just great for all of us. So like, especially if you, you know, drop social media in there, not from a business building perspective. You know, when we, we all get caught up in the mindless scroll, add social media, add your time consuming consuming, you know, digital content, whether it be TV or Netflix, and then compare that to how much time are you spending? Re- I, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this. And you're like, man, you know, that ratio is not where I want it to be to get me where I want to go. What's your ratio right now? <sighs> My ratio right now is probably, I try to keep it on at least a one-to-one um, but you know, listen, I, I, I'm guilty of you, you sit in front of your computer all day long grinding and you turn it off and it's seven o'clock. I'm guilty of like rolling in for dinner and, and, and just spending three hours either with, you know, and you could say, well, spending time with the wife and going for a walk, does that technically count as entertainment versus I wouldn't. So I, I would say I try really hard to keep that in a one-to-one or, you know, days that I'm slip, slipping, it can, it can be a two-to-one entertainment versus education. Um, but I'm mindful of it and, uh, and I'm constantly trying to, to improve on it. So let me ask you this. Um, you've been quoted a lot of times as saying we're witnessing the greatest fundamental mm-hmm. shift mm-hmm. the world has seen in the way we organize, collaborate, connect, mm-hmm. and contribute since mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that's a bold <laughs> statement. Does that have anything to do with what we were just talking about, or is this Absolutely. something different? Yeah, it is. No, no, no. That 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 is this collision between hierarchies and networks. It is, it, and, and to me, what what is so fascinating, and maybe it's just because it's like once you see it. Right, especially when I talk about the quote unquote unwritten rules of the hierarchy, and I in my programs I have these great visuals, and um, they they the things that get the most tweeted and and pictures taken of. It's like once they get ingrained in people's minds, I put these 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 motion graphic images of hierarchies and networks up. They just get burnt into your memory, and pe- you start to see it play out everywhere. They go back to their companies, and they're like, "Oh my god, I see this kind of residue of the hierarchy everywhere." And it's not that it's all bad. I'm I'm not I'm never out saying that the hierarchy is is bad. I'm just simply saying, are there places where it no longer serves us, where it holds us back, it makes us, you know, it's it's more resistant and rigid to change and transformation because. This world of the network, it's pouring in on top of us. And I think what's, what's my unique perspective on it is that there's lots of people who talk exclusively about the network and its impact on the marketplace and the world of work. And whether or not they, they call it, quote unquote, the network, it's essentially what they're talking about. But what they leave out of the equation, what they fail to acknowledge is the fact that the structures and more importantly, the deeply embedded culture of the hierarchy still exists. And if we don't talk about that, I feel like we do every single leader who who's managing people for at least 15 years or more, a total and complete disservice. We have to talk about both. I feel like the rise of the network and, and especially the huge influx of millennials is responsible for what we often refer to as socially conscious 
business or socially mm-hmm. conscious entrepreneurship. Definitely. What are you seeing in trends with that? Uh, so this, you know, the idea of social consciousness and, and, and B corporations that are, you know, it's not just about profits, it's principles, it's giving back, you know, it's Tom shoes, it's Warby Parker, you know, I, part of it is the network has allowed us visibility into seeing the impact that these decisions have on a global scale, right? We, we're just, we're getting visibility into like, okay, what happens when we source products from countries where labor is treated, you know, worse than animals or we pollute the earth in certain areas because of the products that we're using. And I just watched a documentary on, on the leather and tanning industry in Indonesia and the amount of waste and runoff that comes from some of these places in the working conditions that people are living in. And you're just, your heart breaks and you're like, I had no idea, you know, uh, you had no idea people are living and operating in some of these situations, but because of essentially quote unquote, the network, right? Our digitally connected world, the internet, we have, we're, we're starting to see the impacts. It's making us more globally conscious. It's making us more aware of the fact that, you know, we literally are all connected and thank God that it has and it, and, and it is, um, and it's making organizations more mindful. And fortunately, even the, the businesses in the marketplace that maybe wouldn't naturally, you know, they're not being led by leaders that care about that. Um, the marketplace will punish, uh, you know, a brand or a company that, that that's not mindful of those things. Yeah, I feel like people can't and, and companies can't hide that that crap is going difficult. on anymore. And it's very difficult. Thanks to the network and social media, quite honestly, people can't turn their head away and say, oh, I didn't see that, or oh, that doesn't affect me now either. It's true. It, it, it makes it closer. And I, I, one of the, the technologies that I'm excited about that I think will bring even more, because what you're talking about there is empathy, um, is, is VR technology, virtual reality, to be able to really put people in these situations to bring them closer will, and there's actually research. I, I wish I could remember the statistic and cite the, cite the study that did this, but it, it kind of gave some examples of putting people through VR experiences and how much it amplified real empathy compared to had they just read an article or even watched a traditional standard video online. And as a result of feeling that empathy, as a result of literally walking among those people and in those situations, uh, they were more likely to take real action. And so I'm excited about what that technology, and I, and I try to think about that too, as even just the content creation and, and, and live event space changes of like, how will, you know, how might we, we leverage some of these new tools around uh, virtual reality and augmented reality to help people really make transformational shifts in their behavior and action. It's fascinating. You know, all this knowledge that you've been talking about for the past half hour, this is why you get paid twenty five <laughs> to $50,000 for speaking engagement. But let's talk about that. I actually want to talk about money because mm. some people hear that number and they, they gasp. They're like, come, yeah. come on, how? Yeah. Or, or how could I yeah. do that? Or is that yeah. real? So yeah. my first question is, how does somebody even start out building a brand like yours and, and work their way up to those type of commissions? So it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great conversation piece around, you know, our perceived self-worth and our value and how do you put a number on it and whether it's it's your keynote speaking fee or it's your coaching fee or your live event fee, right? We we all navigate that to your first question of how do you even start Number one, it's just the, I think it's the thing that people want to skip over the most today in the Instagram social media world of 
you have to put in the dirty, hard work of becoming an expert on something first. Was this the donating plasma phase? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be willing to go through the, the yes! donating plasma to, to yes! make ends meet phase. People don't understand. Like, uh, listen, you know, I have a, a wonderful, beautiful, supportive family, but we did not come from, a, from a, you know, a financially abundant background. I grew up, I lived in a trailer house until I was in sixth grade. And then we had a, the ability to like build a small home on the land that we lived on, on the farm. Farming in the 80s, for anyone that was aware, was a very, very difficult difficult proposition. Most people didn't survive and we, we eked it out, but you know, very, very humble upbringings. And, and quite frankly, even right out of university, my parents were just not in a position to be able to, you know, su support me in a su substantial way. And so when I, when I took my shot, because I believed this was my path to go work for David and Lynn, uh, they were not in a position to pay me, even quite frankly, a livable wage. But I took it and I was like, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to be able to get into the game. And I literally, I donated blood platelets a couple of times a week to like make extra cash. And I would do anything that I could. In fact, I would go back home in the spring and I'd pick rock and help on the farm of, you know, friends and family in the community, whatever it, to get into the game. And while I was doing that, I was putting in the dirty hard work. This is before any of the, the bright lights and the stages of becoming an expert on the subject matter of first generational shifts and then becoming a student of what I was seeing and what the marketplace needed to then see what would be the next thing that would be, be talked about and starting to study this dynamic between hierarchies and networks and, 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 and reading countless books. And, and I've, I've done thousands of interviews with leaders before every event, you know, we'll do a half a dozen or a dozen interviews, all of those interviews, giving me knowledge and perspective that then gives you the ability to bring insight and provocation to the marketplace to help people think differently about, you know, whatever your area, your niche is. So number one, right, someone's listening to this, the path of being able to get into the game and to charge a fee worthy of your, 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 your biggest dreams. Number one, you have to put in the work. You have to pound the stone of becoming an expert in your area. There are no shortcuts around that, right? That's number one. Number two, right, now you got to start to bring that provocation. You have to start to bring that insight to the marketplace. And I am by no means a marketing or content distribution expert whatsoever. I took a very unique path in that for me, I looked out in the marketplace and I said, I want to learn from the best. And I went to work for someone else for a short period of time to elevate the impact that I could have in the world. By working alongside David and Lynn, it gave me credibility in the marketplace. Now, when I first started out, right, from a keynote speaking fee perspective, and again, this is relevant for everyone, I started out at $5,000. $7,500, which is essentially kind of an entry-level point in the corporate, you know, corporate keynote speaking space. Some people might still think $7,500 for an hour is unbelievable, but it's all relative, right? It's not an hour. It's all the prep work on the front end. It's all the travel, et cetera. But I, I distinctly remember, you know, how do you go from 17 where now, you know, we charge 18000 individually and 50000 for joint full-day leadership events, Going from seven to 18, every step along the way, you first have to convince yourself of the value before the marketplace will believe you. How do you do that? I mean, this is where people struggle, right? They, they have such a hard time placing a value on themselves and then asking for it. 
Well, just because we undervalue ourselves, you know, in all aspects, right? We're, we're our own worst critic. I mean, you certainly have to be mindful of what the marketplace will bear, right? I mean, like if what, what I look in my marketplace is like, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to, if I was going to try to charge $35,000 individually, I have to look out into the marketplace and I have to, and I have to be brutally honest with myself of, okay, the speakers that are charging $35,000 what have they accomplished and how much value are they bringing to the marketplace? And am I currently able to match or meet? And some of it is quote unquote perceived value. If you've got five best selling books under your belt and coming off of a TV show and you're a pseudo celebrity and a half a million bot, you know, Instagram followers, like some of that gives you the ability to charge that kind of a kind of a premium. Even if the in-room experience is almost par for par, I have to look at that person and say, they have been in the dark, pounding away, you know, they pumped out five best selling books, they've built a community of that scale. I, I haven't done that. Right. And if I want to get there, they're showing me the path of how I do get there in order to be able to demand that kind of a fee. So you have to be aware of and knowledgeable about what what are the price points and what will the marketplace bear, but you certainly can't undervalue yourself. You know, I could say, well, what's the value, you know, that one hour that we spend with leaders, if that empowers three leaders to live better, more impactful lives, they're more innovative, and because they show up differently, five of their employees who were going to leave now won't leave, and they, let, they don't have the cost of that turnover, you can't even begin to put a price tag on that. So now in my, so now in my head, I'm like, I'm worth way more than $18,000. Now, I would never say that out loud because we, you know, we try to be as humble as possible, humble and grateful, but you have to convince yourself of that and you have to freaking own that. You know, you just gave such a great, I don't want to call it a formula, but such great information for everybody out there that's trying to apply a value to what they do, whether you're asking for a salary or whether you're a mm. self-employed personal trainer or a consultant yes. of some sort, everybody yes. has this struggle and can kind of follow your guideline there as to how to figure out what your value is. I hope, right? What is the marketplace going to bear? And then what is the value you're bringing to the marketplace? And if you're, if you're not bringing the same amount of substantial value as that person that you're looking to, well, there's something you can do about it. Go to, go to work on that. But if you don't value yourself, the marketplace certainly is not going to value you. So we're talking money. How do you view money? Like, have you always had this awesome relationship with valuing you know Oof. money and self-worth and all that uh, no my relationship with money has been a a long and treacherous journey you know i grew up in an environment you know I, it's, it's a bit of a uh, around mindset about either having an abundant mindset or a, a a a mindset of scarcity and i certainly grew up in a mindset of, of scarcity when it came to money and partly that was because for my parents that was very much their reality, and and for all of their wonderful, unbelievable attributes, and and you know the history of generations of family members, as great as they are, they were never taught to have an abundant mindset. They were always operating from a position of scarcity and not enough. And of course, that was then being reflected back to them as their reality, right, in the world from a farming perspective. And they were never exposed to anyone who who said, you know, you, you can level up. I, I, so I can remember in my mind, you know, growing up, I didn't even know. So I grew up outside of Rochester, Minnesota, in the world famous Mayo Clinic. So just this will this will speak volumes of like my view of money. So you've got the Mayo Clinic. In my family, I didn't even know 
personally know a doctor in my universe at all. Everyone I knew were essentially, you know, laborers and workers. Nothing wrong, incredible work ethic. I didn't know a single lawyer, a single doctor, a single business owner. And so it was always like, you know, my family were the people who worked for the doctors. They were the housekeepers, the gardeners, the landscapers, right? That's who that's who we were. And it becomes almost like an identity. And unless you meet someone who tells you you can be more, right? You you adopt the limiting belief that that is essentially your ceiling. And I can remember thinking in my mind, like when I started to really stretch it, it was like, oh my God, if, if I could someday get to a place of making $50,000, right? I, that would be unbelievable. And then when it's, even when I got to a place of, I could stretch even beyond it, it was like six figures. If I could get to $100,000, because I didn't know anyone who made $100,000. And the second I started to surround myself and, and allow mentors, seek out mentors in my life that were living an abundant mindset and an abundant life where there was more than enough, that anything was possible and that the more value you, you brought to the marketplace, the more value you could charge and that really the sky was absolutely the limit, did my mind start to open up to what the possibilities could be and it took a long time of working on it, a long time of focusing on manifestation and, and giving myself the permission and the ability to say, you know what, I, I can say, you know, I'm so thankful and grateful that I've got a seven-figure business. I'm so thankful and grateful that I'm creating you know, but it was like, at first it was six figures and then it was like, I, and I still go through this, right? Of like, now it's like, yeah, you know what? Yes, we've got a seven, we've got a seven figure business. It's awesome. But like, can I stretch myself to believe that eight figures is possible? Why is it, why can't I, why can't I believe that nine figures is possible? It, it really is a mindset, right? You're it's never going to hit a target that you don't believe in or see first. Never. You know, it's so funny. You're telling the story how you couldn't possibly imagine making $50,000 Here's a, a, a transparent story of myself. So I had dropped out of college and I thought I was going to buy a few ratty rental properties. And I remember doing this budget that if I could buy enough of these rental properties and cash flow each one a little bit, that I could clear $24,000 a year and live in half of one of these ratty duplexes. And I thought, man, that'd be great. Like an extra $24,000 a year plus, you know, free place to live. I'd be making it. Like, isn't that crazy to think? Yes. Yes, yes. You know, but it, it, but it's not crazy. And you and I both know, and I and I, I love them dearly. I'm still connected to them. You know, we we still have plenty of people in our lives from our hometowns and our upbringing that they are living that exact life. And 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 we that's a this will be a discussion for another day. Of of course, money doesn't buy hap bring happiness. They're living you know perfectly happy, fulfilled lives, but they're living exactly to the level of their expectations. So do you think that we have a, a responsibility to be financially successful or do we have a calling or a right to be financially successful? What are your thoughts around that? A responsibility to be financially – I mean listen, if you can right, and you can be responsible and it gives you an opportunity because what, what do we have at our, at, our, at our capacity and our ability now? We have the ability to essentially – employ other people. We have the ability to hire contractors and, you know, allow other people to live out their dreams. We have the ability to give back from a charity standpoint and look to help and raise other people up. 
I think this, you know, just like we try to do that in other aspects and other ways in our lives, whether it just be, you know, showing empathy, helping non-financial ways, we have a responsibility to do that from a financial standpoint too. So I think it's a great question. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but, you know, taking your lead and you are such a remarkable leader and such a positive influence on that front of, Yes, absolutely we do. And and by doing that, right, we have we have the, the ability and the capacity to transform lives around us. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. So listen, before I get to the last question, I've got to ask you, what's next and exciting for you guys? So two big, massive things that I'm super excited about. Number one, the book is out, right? Mm. It's called The War at Work. You're going to be able to get it on Amazon. Get this book. I think it's. It, I I primarily wrote it for the forty to fifty year old executive in any size organization that essentially grew up in the hierarchy and is trying to understand the skills, competencies, uh, uh, requirements that will be needed to lead with with impact through this change that we're experiencing. But the truth is anyone can get value from it. It's there's, there's timeless lessons in it. And, and here's the best part, part, Chris, we wrote it as a fable. It is not a 300 page long book. This thing is 135 pages. You could read it in a flight. It's written in fable format. It's an epic story of two leaders journey through this transformation, how you lead in this new world. It's fast paced. It's interesting, hard hitting lessons. And 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 it's a, and it's a quick read, and I we intentionally wrote it that way because you know we're all guilty. I'm looking at a stack of business books in front of me right now, some of which are written by friends of mine, and I haven't even gotten through all of them. It's difficult, and uh, we wrote this one to be read. So the war at work, Amazon, get it. Super excited. This the second thing that we're super excited about is we're essentially rolling out a new. Uh, digital community, part digital magazine, part social network called Luminate. And essentially what this platform serves is it was a way for me to bring this real life tribe that we're in front of, right? We're in front of 20, 30,000 people every single year. How do I take them and and turn that into a digital community where we can have this, this two-way conversation, not just with me, but to shine a light on other what we call luminaries who are thought leaders and really helping to design and create what the future of leadership and work will be uh, in in this on and on this platform. So articles, podcasts, we're gonna hopefully you and I will be able to work something out. We'd love to be able to feature your podcast, video series, assessments, just everything that a leader will need to live a big, powerful life, both at work and in their personal life. So that community is is coming live. You know, we're, it's all the technology and the build. We're shooting for a May 1st live update. And that is that thing's going to live at justluminate.com. And uh, I could not be more excited about those two projects. Man, I'd be honored to be a part of that or help in any way. So justluminate.com, roughly yep. May 1st? Roughly May 1st. And is the book available at Amazon right now? Book's available. You know, the way, the way you describe the book, it actually sounds like another book that's one of my all-time favorites. And that is The Go-Giver. It's it's a a fable. It's an easy read. And it really is a a story that paints a picture of how to get further in business by giving. And and yours is painting a picture of how to get further in business, you know, with your methodologies. I love it. 
It's a hundred percent right. You know, the go giver uh, for for all of your listeners who read, you know, the monk who sold his Ferrari. You know, all of those books in that vein. We, it's like we get can get captivated by the story, and you're picking up these timeless lessons, and they're relatively easy reads. I just I personally feel that you know the book publishing space. Of course, it's being disrupted like everything, but the way we're consuming content, particularly in that book format, is evolving and changing too. And it's easy for the ego to want to say, you know, write the big thick book, go with the traditional publisher, and and that opportunity was certainly presented to us. But just because that feels good to the ego, is that necessarily what's going to serve the most people? And if we go back to my mantra of love people, serve people, add value, have fun. I don't know if that was the right path. And so we, we took this path and, and hopefully it will, uh, it will do some good in the marketplace. I was just going to go back to that mantra. I was going to say, mm-hmm. it sounds like you actually walked the walk of your mantra instead of doing the, the big shiny distraction. And Trying. I, dude, that's why I love you. Like, it's so great to see people, you know, not just say one thing, but to actually back it up and to do this incredible thing that they say they're going to do and that they, they say they live their life by. And that's why I've got so much respect for you. I, I appreciate it, brother. And that is that is absolutely not a knock against the traditional path. I, I hope you know that I will 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 do a traditional published book, hardcover, the whole nine yards. Those can be phenomenal and will be a phenomenal opportunity. But for this one, you know, this is this is the path we've chosen. So that's that's the scoop, brother. I love it. People are going to be flocking to you. All right. So last question I always ask everybody, and I love the, mm. the different variety of answers here. <laughs> Why should people feel unapologetic? about their pursuit of wealth and success? Why should we feel unapologetic? Gosh, my first reaction to that is like, I want those answers because I sometimes find myself apologizing for, you know, trying to, to live as big and bold a life as I possibly can. I guess the, the, the second thing I get hit with is we shouldn't be, uh, 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 we should be unapologetic about it is because if you live that life, right, if you allow your, your brightest light to shine, you essentially give permission and empower others to live theirs. And I mean, what, what better gift to be able to give another than to, you know, give them the inspiration and the insight to say, you know what, I, I, I can go for mine too. Chris is going to live a, go live a big, bold life. If he can, why can't I? And uh, if we could all lean into that, right? We had collectively, we've got a chance to create the kind of world that we all want to live in. Yeah, man, that's a that's a chain reaction we're starting right there. Amen. Listen, I appreciate your time. I'm so grateful that you that you mm. jumped on here. You really lived up to your mantra, right? You you loved on us. You provided massive value. I mean, everything you delivered was epic. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Chris, and thanks to all the listeners who are still with us. And uh, I look forward to staying connected. You got it, man. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.